0: Hi, all. Isaac here. Just a quick note before we get started. This podcast contains a brief use of explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. I'm Isaac Kaplan. Last month, the New York Times published a story detailing a number of sexual harassment allegations leveled against Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein. In the weeks since, at least 20 high-profile men have faced accusations of sexual misconduct, including two powerful figures in the art world, former Art Forum co-publisher Knight Landisman and former Armory Show director Ben Ginocchio. On today's episode, a discussion of these sexual misconduct allegations, what gave rise to them, and what should change. Here to guide and lead that discussion is Associate Editor Abigail Kane. Hey, Isaac. As well as market editor Anna Louise Sussman, hi Isaac, and senior editor Tess Thackera.
1: hey Isaac. So I think we should start with Knight Landisman, who had worked at Art Forum since the 1980s. He was a mainstay of the art world. He's one of the major players in a chapter of Sarah Thornton's book, Seven Days in the Art World. That chapter is all about Art Forum, but I think he also appears in the Art Basel chapter as well because he was everywhere in the art world. And on October 24th, ArtNet News reported allegations of sexual harassment made by several women and men against Landisman. And a day later, Landisman resigned. Just as a former employee, Amanda Schmidt, was filing a lawsuit against him and the magazine in the New York Supreme Court. Isaac, you wrote an explainer a few days after the news broke. Um, can you tell us what the allegations against Landisman were?
0: Yeah, the allegations against Landisman, which are made by both Schmidt, who is the plaintiff in the case, the only plaintiff, as well as Uh, several other women in in Schmidt's complaint, uh, include public groping, uh, sending lewd emails, requests for kisses and back rubs, and also uh, instances where Landisman retaliated in professional settings, uh, often publicly, when advances that he made against these women were rebuffed by them.
2: I think it's also worth noting that... um... Many, in many of these cases, the women were younger, you know, sort of just entering the art world, um, which is a theme across many of these sexual harassment cases that we've seen coming out. Uh, older, powerful men taking advantage of young women as they sort of enter their field.
1: Right. And Tess, I know you said that some of these allegations were things that you'd heard about before.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I know a handful of women who have personally experienced similar such behavior from nightlandersmen, you know being groped at parties having very inappropriate questions asked about their sexual lives um, being sent gifts things like this um, you know no one that has been really seriously sort of marked or traumatized by that experience but you know that doesn't make it okay <laughs> or acceptable Um, But it's pretty, you know, I've had had several cases of this with him, particularly.
3: I was listening to a podcast on the Atlantic's station and uh, Jody Cantor and Katie Benner were talking. They're both New York Times reporters, uh, one of whom broke the Weinstein um, allegations, along with another reporter and uh, another one who's written a lot about sexual harassment of women in Silicon Valley or in the tech community. And both of them talked about the interesting position of reporting on open secrets. Um, so you're not unearthing something that no one knew about. It's not a revelation in that sense, but you're getting people to, you know, have the courage and come forward and put on the record things that many people knew about. So this seems like it's one of those cases. And so the reaction um, you know, I, I think many women I know, uh when the me too hashtag started going viral i my response was like fucking course me too it was like forehead smack kind of obvious um and so you know you saw women in the art world shortly after the landisman um allegations came out put together their own response um which garnered eventually more than 5000 Signatures um, and and I think they closed it, but it was written originally. From what I understand, the Guardian reported uh, 150 women kind of got together, started talking about it, and their hashtag was not surprised. They took that cue from a uh, Jenny Holzer' work. Abusive power comes as no surprise, and it pointed to the fact that yes, these are this is definitely about power relationships, which are incredibly salient um, in the art world where. You know, merit is not always recognized. Talent is not always recognized. So much of your success in your career has to do with relationships. You know, it's it's similar to other industries in that respect. Obviously, Hollywood um, or you know the entertainment industry is one example. And people always mention the power of Weinstein himself and obviously who he who he was and the power he wielded in that industry. And I I don't think um, Landisman is dissimilar from what I understand. I'm still. I still feel like I'm new to this industry, but, you know, he he seemed to be extremely influential. And, you know, it seems as though he abused that power and and made it known. One person who approached me after with her own story, she's actually in her 50s. And she said when she was really young... um, 21 she was working in gallery and he came in and you know also asked her out pursued her really aggressively and she said she felt he made it known that he was a powerful person and she was in her words quote-unquote just a gallery monkey
2: you know i think that this behavior is so commonplace for people in the art world as in many industries perhaps all <laughs> industries that there is this normalization that happens whereby you know, you almost feel like this isn't newsworthy because it's so commonplace. And I found myself, I sort of caught myself having a reaction to some of these reports and I'm not talking about the really egregious, you know, the Harvey Weinstein's and James Toback's and, but sometimes just having this reaction of like, well, so what, this has been going on forever. This is completely normal. And then you have to catch yourself and realize actually this is totally unacceptable. And endemic of a much larger misogynist culture um, in the art world and other fields, which severely disadvantages women, makes them feel disempowered. And, you know, if you feel that way, it's that much more difficult to succeed. Obviously, I spoke to Betty Tompkins for the piece that Anna and I reported on this. um, And in it, she described a teacher having said to her, basically, if you want to succeed in the art world, you're going to have to do so on your back. Mm-hmm. And that is just such a grotesquely vile and threatening and degrading thing to hear. I can't even imagine how you would feel this was a place for you to, to have a career, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, that that sense of normalcy, that point that you're bringing up is, maybe it's worth mentioning, also the second person accused of sexual harassment, um, like a major power in the art world. That's Ben Ginocchio, um, who actually came on the podcast a few weeks ago to talk about art fairs. And he was the former head of the Armory Show, but he'd also been editor-in-chief of Artnet News, and he'd worked at Louise Blue and Media. That story was reported by the New York Times. And when you read through it, I mean, people brought up a lot of the the issues that they were having with him to HR departments at Artnet News specifically. And they had, I think they reported about a meeting in August 2016, right after he left Artnet News, um, where a bunch of female employees came together to talk about, you know, how they felt like the workplace wasn't a safe place for women. And, you know, at least from what we've heard from the allegations of Ginocchio, I mean, his harassment was mostly verbal. You know, it was mostly just misogynistic things mm-hmm. with like a little bit of leg touching, which, like Tess was saying, it doesn't sound, you know, it's, it's not as scary as rape. And it can feel normalized because... That stuff happens all the time.
2: Yeah. And I think a big part of this is, um, you know, one of the positives that I think can come out of all of these cases is a consciousness raising for women everywhere that these things aren't acceptable. And maybe um, you sort of grow aware of the ways that these things do affect you that you might not really be totally conscious of on a day to day basis.
1: Right. And I don't know. I mean, one of the things that they mentioned in this hashtag not surprised letter was the fact that there are a lot of workplaces that don't have clear descriptions or descriptions at all of what sexual harassment actually means, which is especially pervasive, I think, in the art world because there are a lot of non traditional workplaces. There aren't HR departments. Um, And I mean, Anna and, and Tess, how do you think that that? plays into this situation?
3: I mean, this came up um, in a story I was working on on just the broad range of reactions to the Landis allegations. Um, you know, just to note, some people called for a boycott of Art Forum. I reached out to a couple of dozen galleries. Um, a couple went on the record and said they wouldn't. A couple um, said they were holding their advertising. Um, but, you know, people brought up this... Uh, Two things about the undersea. One is, uh, you know, galleries are often small operations. Um, uh, Artnet News at that point, they had an HR department, but so a lot of places don't. And that makes it difficult to know how to proceed, um, who to talk to when I interviewed uh women who've who experienced um harassment and discrimination i you know i asked if if they felt like they had anywhere to report these things and they said no god no you know one said she worked for a female gallerist and the attitude was kind of just just shut up and do your job that was basically the um feeling she got from from the person she worked for and a second thing that came up was that in general the art world is also um an intellectually uninhibited, um, it's an industry that draws free spirits, and um, people are comfortable talking about things that might be taboo in other workplaces. So Wendy Norris, who has a, she's a, a dealer in San Francisco, she made this point about, y- y- you can you can be looking at work by an artist that might be about, you know, their history of sexual abuse, and you can get into these conversations that you would never uh, ordinarily um, have in in, in in a corporate environment. Um, but, you know, she, there's the obvious point that just because you're looking at work uh, that has to do with sex doesn't give you license to um, feel you're entitled to sex with the person who's making that kind of work.
2: Yeah, this came up in my conversation with Betty Tompkins as well, who, you know, came up in the art world of the 70s, 80s in New York, um, painting very sexually graphic imagery um and she said you know like are you crazy i'm not gonna have a man come into my studio when i've got like a 15 foot dick painting on my wall basically and think that he's not going to expect something from me um so she said that she always had a man in the studio with her whether it was um a boyfriend her husband Um, someone she just knew that she could never be alone and that's you know it's a very the studio is a very personal private space um you know and then there's all kinds of situations you can imagine women finding themselves in in the art world that that do feel unconventional in that regard well a lot
1: of one-on-one interactions that
2: have no you know oversight or or encounters that
3: bleed into evening you know engagements um you know you go to openings that are at night or you go to parties at art fairs um and all of a sudden it's like eleven thirty 30 p.m and you know that's when people start thinking about where they're gonna sleep <laughs> you know if they're with whom <laughs> you know if it, um and you know I luckily at art fairs I'm typically home writing so I don't have a lot of experience <laughs> with this but um you know it's 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 a kind of uh environment um there's often wine or champagne uh that's being consumed, and that that also came up in in um uh an interview with someone who said you know these guys will they'll come into the gallery and they'll say oh i'd love to love to maybe buy that painting but let's let's go next door to you know this wine bar and and have a glass of wine and talk about art and so you also have that sense that um she felt like men were sort of leveraging her interest in art and also the power that they <clears throat> had, the power of the purse, essentially, to make a sale that could garner her a commission, or that be very, really important to, to her job, and um, wielding that to, to sort of lubricate a further interaction with her, um, where she felt she had very little power to say no.
1: Yeah, and that, that sense of you know, things kind of bleeding into each other was something actually that um I read a piece that Coco Fusco wrote for hyperallergic, where she was specifically talking about how sexual harassment is so pervasive in art schools. And she also referenced that too, where it's like, you know, maybe if you were like getting a, you know, a PhD in art history or something, you would be spending your nights in a you know, in a library in a corral you're not really talking to other people but if you're like a, getting an MFA you're probably working in the studio with a lot of people it's going late at night you guys might have alcohol you know that 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 line between work and and social interaction is a lot less clear and she was also talking a lot about sexual harassment and like professor student relationships as well which i mean isn't limited to art school either but it's again that same issue of power and you know someone having control over your career and your prospects because the art world is so hard to make it in. And because so many of the decisions are subjective, you know, it's not like you look at a painting, you're like, this is the, you know, this is like an A plus painting. This will definitely get sold. It's like, this is, you know, probably reaches a certain threshold of quality, but also who, who you're friends with, who supports you. That's going to be the make or break thing about whether or not it gets sold and whether you have a successful career. And Tess, I'm specifically curious, you've been working on a project that looks at the evolution of gender equality in the art world. So starting with artists from Mm -hmm. like the 60s and 70s, like Betty Tompkins, all the way to today, like the artists that are in their 20s now. Um, And I'm just wondering, I mean, what are those earlier
2: generations of female artists
1: thinking about what's happening right now?
2: I think they're really amazed that this is happening. Um, Surprised that these stories are being given this level of attention and that does feel like you know although in many ways <laughs> the problems persist and sort of take on different forms you know now we have although we're sort of all conscious of gender inequality in the art worlds, um there are problems of tokenism and you know the, the problems change and sort of morph into different things but but if one you know positive thing can be said about this moment, it's that we are taking all of these cases really seriously. And that feels like something very concrete that has changed.
3: Well, for example, Art Forum announced they were making um, a special task force of women at the magazine to make it a zero tolerance environment for sexual harassment after the Nightlandisman um, uh, allegations and after his resignation. But You know, I think that a lot of people who write about women in the workplace might look at something like that and um, compare it to, you know, diversity groups at law firms where you're just asking people who are already experiencing harassment and, and things that interfere with their ability to do their job to take on an extra responsibility to stop those things and to take more time out of their work day or um, after their work day to have meetings and organize things and write memos and track data. And um, I feel like it needs to be for people who are doing the harassment to figure out that they shouldn't harass um, or discriminate. And I I think Tess's point that the awareness that's being raised and the seriousness with which it's being taken and you know Rebecca Traster, um had a, a piece that we were discussing off air um, in the Cut in New York Magazine, and you know she cited all these men who are think probably think of themselves as good guys, um, going back and reexamining their behavior, and in, in, in some cases, you know, giving themselves like a personal high five for not having grabbed anyone. But you know she she's observed them perhaps be discriminatory, perhaps overlook. Talented female colleagues in favor of male colleagues. So, you know, I think again, since it's mostly men in power, I think I do think it needs it is for men um, to examine their own behavior uh, beyond just the fact of whether they've grabbed anyone's chest or not. Um, It's it's so much deeper, you know. And and this is now part of how um, workplaces discuss diversity. They talk about unconscious bias. You know, there's there's a lot more research on this and a lot more training available, but you know, it, it it's it does irritate me a little bit when I hear women being asked to solve these problems when the big problem is men.
1: I mean, looking at looking at the landscape now and looking to the future. I mean, other than task forces made up of women who have to do extra off the books work, like what do we like? Are there any solutions to this issue? I mean, it's hugely. I mean, it's structural. It's pervasive it can sometimes be kind of overwhelming thinking about, you know, solve, solving it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think each each area of the art world just needs to take a good look at itself and sort of... Um, review whether or not there are these cases happening, what can be done to provide people the recourse to address these problems if they're happening. Hopefully there'll be real structural change. Um, you know, uh, there'll be more HR departments in places where there currently aren't any Um, and women will feel like they're taken care of and they can actually have space to talk about these things. And I think also um, a big part of that is making sure that there are more
3: women in positions of power. I mean, that's fairly obvious. Um, And that's not to say that women in power won't abuse power because that's entirely possible. Um, That's a, a story about a very powerful female dealer who tended to hit on her male artists came up in the course of my interviews she's no longer alive and I don't feel comfortable naming her, but you know, it's, it's not out of the realm of the possible, but I think because we haven't experienced ever a world where women wield the majority of power, we don't know what that looks like. And it's entirely possible to be a much more comfortable environment for everyone.
1: Thanks again to Tess and Anna for joining us on this podcast.
0: And thank you, Abby, uh, for guiding that discussion Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes if you haven't already. See you next week. Our theme music is by Broke for Free. This week's producer, as always, Associate Editor Abigail Kane.